0: Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. When I was uh, in university, I was in a boy band. You heard it correctly. It was called Capital Jazz. Capital Jazz. Uh, Now, come on. It was the era of boy bands. I mean, you'd have Boys to Men, the Backstreet Boys. They're back. All right. (laughs) You had all of these sort of bands. And so I was in this boy band with five other guys, and we were like a a five-part harmony singing group, and we thought we were going to make it. Uh, Now, that's not what the story's about, but... um, One of my mates who was in this group with me, he was unique. He was a unique guy. Like most of the other, he was a Catholic. And most of the other Catholics that I knew growing up were all nominal. They didn't really believe. They just claimed to be Catholic, but they didn't really believe. Whereas this friend of mine who was in Capital Jazz with me, he was a really strong, devoted Catholic. He would go to Mass every single week. He'd read his Bible every single day. They had a crucifix up in every single room in their house. His parents had actually been, uh, his, his mom had been a nun. His father had been a priest. They'd fallen in love. And they'd obviously left the, I don't know what they call it, but they'd left the nunnery and the priesthood in order to get married and to have a family. And he was very devout. And he was a beautiful guy. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful guy. Very sincere, very devout. And it made me wonder... Is he truly saved? Is he truly saved? I don't know if you've met devout Catholics like that, people who really believe and who really go to church every single week. And it it makes you wonder, are they really saved? Well, that's actually a very hard question to answer because we can't look into people's hearts. and We can't determine what they really believe. A better question to ask is this, is, does the Roman Catholic Church teach the biblical gospel? And that's the question that I want to seek to tackle tonight as we look in our worldview series at Catholicism. Now, as we look at Catholicism, I want to um, just read you a quote from James White in his book, The Fatal Floor. This is what he says, as He says, if a Christian is to seek to share the gospel with Catholics, and in doing so identify the Roman Catholic Church as a non-Christian system, then he absolutely must make sure that his statements are truly reflective of Catholic belief. Any grandstanding that results in a caricature, a misrepresentation, even if it's not central to the argument, can result in a loss of integrity. So as we examine Catholicism tonight, I want to make sure that I am not presenting in a caricature, I'm not bashing Catholics, but I just want to present the truth of what the Bible teaches. I want to hold up what their catechism teaches to what the Bible teaches. So tonight we're going to be looking at the question, does the Roman Catholic Church teach the biblical gospel? And to answer this question, we're going to look at two things tonight. Firstly, we're going to look at the basis of their authority. What do they base their gospel upon? And then secondly, we're going to look at what do they teach that you must do to be saved? What do they teach that you must do to be saved? So firstly, let's have a look at the basis of their authority. What do they base their gospel upon? Now, the Roman Catholic Church, they believe in apostolic succession. They believe that their current church is the church that Jesus first set up in the first century. That Jesus appointed Peter to be the first pope, and then that office of pope was passed on in a succession of bishops to the present day pope. Now, they believe in the authority of the scriptures, they believe that the scriptures are authoritative. But what they put above the Scriptures is they put the church above the Scriptures. The magisterium, the office of the teaching of the church. And they believe that the Pope has the authority to speak authoritative pronouncements of doctrine and dogma ex cathedra from the chair, from the chair in Rome. And so what they have is they not only have sacred Scripture that is part of their teaching... But they have all this sacred tradition, all of these pronouncements that the various popes have made over the years become part of their authority. But underneath, over the top of sacred scripture and over the top of sacred tradition is the church, and in particular, the pope who has the authority to speak infallibly from his post in Rome. Now, what this has obviously led to, it's led to a number of things, but one of those things is the worship of Mary. Here is a picture of people bowing down and worshipping this statue of Mary as the Queen of Heaven. Now, where did the veneration of Mary come from? Well, in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, it was proclaimed by the church that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, which is biblical, right? But then in 553 AD at the Second Enumenical Council of Constantinople, Um, they proclaimed the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary was always a virgin. Now, this is in spite of the fact that when you read the Gospels, Jesus had other brothers and sisters, but yet that's what they proclaimed. Then in 1854, um, the Pope proclaimed the immaculate conception of Mary, that Mary was born without original sin. And then in 1950, Pope Pius III, he made this proclamation that Mary was assumed into heaven, that she at the end of her life just was translated up into heaven as the queen of heaven. So you can see that this veneration of Mary came from this tradition, this sacred tradition. So for Roman Catholics, they have sacred scripture, they have sacred tradition, but the church in particular, the Pope, stands above both sacred scripture and both sacred tradition. Now, what is there in the Bible that would suggest that Jesus installed Peter as the first pope? Well, they turn to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus came to his disciples and he said, "'Who do you say that I am?' And they said, "'Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am?' And Peter replied, "'You are the Christ, the Son of the living God.'" And Jesus answered him and said, "'Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah,' that means Simon, son of Jonah, "'for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven.'" And then Jesus goes on to say, "'And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven.'" So, for Roman Catholics, what is the rock? What is the rock? Well, for Roman Catholics, the rock is Peter. When Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, they say that the rock there on which Jesus is building his church is Peter, in particular, as the first pope. And what are the keys to the kingdom? Well, Roman Catholics believe that the keys to the kingdom is this infallibility that God gave to Peter as the first pope so that whatever he bound on earth would be bound in heaven and whatever he loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. So they say that this is teaching apostolic succession. But is this true? Was Peter installed in the office of pope with the promise of infallibility? Well, it doesn't seem that Paul considered Peter to be infallible. Because in Galatians chapter 2, we have this controversy between Paul and Peter. You see, at the church at Antioch, believers would all eat together. That was until Jewish believers came from James. And when Jewish believers came from James, then Peter changed his opinion. And we read about this in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 14. Listen to this it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is just another name for Peter. I said to Cephas before them all. I said to Peter, "If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Notice that Paul didn't consider Peter to be infallible, but when his conduct was noticed, not in step with the truth of the gospel, he corrected Peter. Paul saw the truth of the gospel as standing above their behavior and their practice. You see, the New Testament doesn't teach that the church is over sacred scripture. But rather, what the New Testament teaches is that the sacred scripture is over the church. The scripture is the norming norm. The scripture is our authority. We stand under the the scriptures. This was one of the big catch cries in the Reformation. In the Reformation, it occurred because of this amazing piece of technology. Um, There was this invention called the printing press. And the printing press, this amazing piece of technology, meant that for the very first time, people could have books mass-produced. And the very first piece of literature that was actually produced by the printing press was the Gutenberg Bible. And so the Bible started to go out into the hands of ordinary people. And another great thing that happened was the very first Greek New Testament was produced. And as people looked at what the Bible taught and the Greek New Testament, and they compared it to what the church was teaching, they realized that the church wasn't teaching what the Bible was teaching. And so... The early reformers came up with this phrase, sola scriptura, sola scriptura. The scriptures alone are our authority. The scriptures stand above the church. And that's still true today. At this church, the scriptures are our authority. The scriptures stand above me. We believe in pastors. We believe that they should teach the church, but they stand above us. And you should be going home. You should be checking what I teach. You should be in your Bible for yourself because this book is more authoritative than anything that anyone in this church ever shares. The scriptures alone are our authority. We don't live by every word that comes from the podcast, we live from every word that comes from the Word of God. We believe in the authority of the Bible. What then is the rock that is mentioned in Matthew 16? Well, exegetically, if you look at it, the rock is actually Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When um, Jesus said, I will call you Peter, he was using a word in Greek, Petra, which means little rock. And then he said, and on this, or little pebble, and on this Petros, this boulder, I will build my church. And what's the boulder on which Christ is building his church? It's the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It is the gospel. That's what the church is built upon. The confession, the authentic, true confession of who Jesus actually is. Well, what are are the keys to the kingdom? The keys to the kingdom is just the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. It's interesting that Peter was there on the day of Pentecost, And he preached the Pentecostal sermon when the Jews came to faith. He was also there sent by the church uh, with John down to Samaria when the Spirit was given and the Samaritans had their Pentecost. And he was also sent by the Lord to Cornelius, the very first Gentile convert. So does the Roman Catholic Church teach the biblical gospel? Well, the basis for their authority is a man. It's not the scriptures. And I would say that they have got way off track. I mean, just look at this picture again, this worship of Mary. The God of the Bible said, you shall have no other gods before me. The God of the Bible said, you shall make no images and bow down and worship them. I wonder how the God of the Bible feels. When he sees people worshipping and venerating someone other than himself. Well, secondly, let's look at the way of salvation. We've looked at the basis of their authority. Let's look at the way of salvation. What do they teach that you must do in order to be saved? If you were to ask a priest, what must I do to be saved? What would they say? Well, they would say, first, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized by a priest And when you're baptized, you have this infusion of righteousness. All people are born with concupiscence, this proclivity to sin. But then you have in your baptism, there is this infusion of righteousness, making you able then to do acts of righteousness. And then throughout your life, you will merit, you will earn merit before God by your good works and by participating in the sacraments. Now, for Catholics, there are seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, um, penance or confession, the anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. And what they believe is that as you participate in the sacraments, you receive grace in order to do good works, in order to gain merit with God. And particular, the two important sacraments, ongoing important sacraments, are the Eucharist and penance or confession. Now, the Eucharist is the Catholic Mass. Every single week, a good Catholic is supposed to go to Mass, and at the climax of the Mass, the ceremony, is communion. But they don't believe that communion is like what we believe. We believe that communion is just a remembrance of what Jesus has done when we break the bread and when we drink the wine. We are just remembering his body broken and his blood shed for us. For Catholics, no, in that moment when the priest blesses the bread and when he blesses the cup, The bread and the wine are transubstantiated. They are turned into the very real substance of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. So that when a Catholic drinks the cup and when he eats the bread, he's eating Jesus. He's eating his blood. He's eating his body. And he's being nourished by his body and by his blood. They also believe that you must go to a priest for ongoing confession of your sin. And the priest has the power to forgive you of your sin. But once you've confessed your sin, the priest will also give you penance. And penance are a way that you can then satisfy your guilty conscience. Um, James White says this, When a Catholic, Roman Catholic confesses to the priest, the priest absolves the penitent person of the guilt and the internal punishment of the sin. However, he does not necessarily remove the temporal punishment of the sin. Rather, he assigns works of penance or contrition by which the person then provides satisfaction for his sins, thereby removing the penalty. So how do you know that your sin is really removed? It's because you've done these works of penance to make up for your sin. And so get this. So this is how you're saved. You you firstly are baptized. You earn merit before God by your good works and by participating in the sacraments. And then finally, when you appear before God in final judgment, God will look down and he'll look at your merits. And if you've earned enough merit, he will declare you to be righteous because you really are in his eyes and he will allow you to go into his presence. But what happens if this occurs? If You do a whole heap of thing, and you're earning a whole heap of merit, but you fall short at the end of your life. What happens then? Well, what happens then, according to Roman Catholicism, is that you go into purgatory, a place where you are purged. Uh, This is what the Catholic Catechism says: All those who um, all all who die in God's grace and friendship, and still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So often if you go into a Roman Catholic church, you'll see some candles, uh, uh, candelabra, and people praying in front of the candles. This is people praying uh, for the souls of their family and loved ones to be released from purgatory. So what do you think is the outcome of the Catholic theology of salvation? I think one of the things that's very, very obvious is Catholics have a lack of assurance. There's this thing called Catholic guilt, where Catholics aren't really confident that they've done enough to earn their salvation. You know, it was interesting, a number of years ago, we were in Russia, and uh, we were on a mission trip in Russia, and Lillian Miguelos, of all people, we came up with this um, uh, Russian Orthodox priest, came to us. and. Uh, and Lillian said to the Russian Orthodox priest, she said, do you, know, do you know where you're going after you die? And the Russian Orthodox priest said, how can anyone know where they're going after they die? I mean, you could you know, confess your sin and then go out and get run over by a car, and then you know, if you enter into God's presence, you'd end up going to hell. Well, Lillian turned to this Russian priest and she said, I know with certainty where I'm going after I die. See, one of the amazing promises of the gospel is that you can have assurance now of where you're going. The apostle John put it this way. He said, I'm writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. But obviously, the more important question to ask is, is this what the Bible teaches? Is this way of salvation what the Bible teaches? That you start with baptism, you earn merit, and eventually, when you appear before God, He will weigh up your merit. And if you've done enough, justify you and allow you to come into His presence. Well, this was the other big discovery in the Reformation. The first big discovery was the power and authority of the Scriptures. But the other big discovery was justification by faith. This is a picture of Martin Luther right here. Well, it's not really, it's actually Ralph Fiennes playing Martin Luther in a movie about Martin Luther. But Martin Luther was a key figure in the Reformation and Martin Luther, as a young person, he was riding home one night and he almost got struck by lightning. And it really scared the living daylights out of him because he realized when he passed into God's presence, he had no assurance of where he was going. And because of this, it kept him up at night. And so he joined an Augustinian monastery and went and did a lot of religious things. He was very, very diligent, but he couldn't satisfy his conscience. And so one of his mentors, one of Martin Luther's mentors said to him, because he was such a good intellectual, they said, Martin, you should go and you should study uh, theology. And so he went to the University of Wittenberg and he became a professor of the Bible And in the University of Wittenberg, Martin Luther was studying through the book of Romans in the Greek New Testament. And he came to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Let me read it for you. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Martin Luther, up to this point, had feared the righteousness of God. Martin Luther had thought that the righteousness of God is God's righteous judgment, where he will pour out his wrath upon you. And that's true. But as he read this verse, he realized that there is this righteousness from God. Notice it's a righteousness that's coming from God, and it comes by faith. And then he came to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And he noticed this word justified in Greek meant to be legally declared righteous. Legally declared righteous. And he noticed that was in the past tense. This is something that had happened. He had Paul was talking about this thing that had happened where he had been legally declared righteous by his grace. And he noticed that the word grace as well was not like the medieval church had taught that grace is this sort of force or power, but rather grace is this attitude that God has towards sinners, where he looks down and he has favor on sinners. And so he justifies people by grace As a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through this one act that Jesus did, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. God put Jesus forward to be the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for sin to satisfy his just wrath. And how is this received? To be received by faith. And Martin Luther realized Justification is not something that comes at the end, after you've worked. Justification is something that comes at the beginning, apart from works. Apart from works, you just receive it by faith. You rest on Jesus. You receive Jesus as offered to you in the gospel, and you rest on Jesus. Jesus. As Romans 2 verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And this completely transformed the world. Justification by faith completely transformed the church. It transformed the world. So not only did the early reformers teach sola scriptura, the scriptures alone are our authority, but they also taught sola gratia. It's by his grace alone, through sola fide, in, by faith alone, through sola Christos, through Christ alone that you are saved. So does the Roman Catholic Church teach the biblical gospel? The answer is no, no. They teach a works gospel rather than the true gospel of grace. I know this is so unpopular nowadays to say this because we all want to be so inclusive and call Roman Catholics our brothers. But the early reformers, they actually saw the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't get everything right, but they saw the Roman Catholic Church as being the Antichrist because they were teaching a false gospel. And just think how many millions of people in the world have been deceived by this false gospel rather than the true gospel of grace. And as Jesus says, on that day of judgment, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do good works in your name? And he will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Because the only way that you come into saving relationship with God is by faith. You admit that you have nothing, you admit that you're poor in spirit, you admit you can't get it together. And you rest and receive the salvation offered to you through Jesus. So I want to talk just now about the power of the true gospel. I want to finish by talking about the power of the true gospel. See, because when the true gospel is unleashed, it changes the world. It's through, the, through the book of Romans, the world has been transformed. The world has been transformed. Transformed. Every time the book of Romans is studied and justification by faith gets lodged in the hearts of people, transforms the church. It transforms people from self-serving people to God-loving people. And see, conversion, becoming a Christian, is not just a formula of praying a prayer. Becoming a Christian is being radically transformed in the heart where you were once a God-hater, Your heart is now transformed by the gospel of grace to be someone who loves God and says, Jesus, you are Lord. I give you all. I give you everything. I will serve you. I will go anywhere. I will do whatever you want because you are Lord of my life. And you always can see when someone has been truly gripped by the free grace of the gospel because they give up all. (laughs) It's this amazing paradox. Amazing. It's free, but then you actually give all. You give all away. You surrender all to Jesus as Lord of your life. You see, it's no surprise to me that the Catholic Church has wandered away from the true gospel because the tendency of our hearts is to wander away from grace into law. But the beauty of Christianity is grace, is you're accepted by Grace by Christ alone, faith alone, by grace alone. Let me pray. Father, I just pray for anyone here tonight who has yet to receive Christ into their life. They don't need to work their way up. They don't need to earn. All they need to do is be humble and admit that they are that bad, they need saving. They need what Jesus offers grace and forgiveness. Lord, we pray that we would be a people of the book, a people of your word, sola scriptura, but we would be a people of grace. We would recognize that it's only Christ, and it's only through Christ that we are saved. Where is the boasting? Where's the boasting, people? It's excluded. There is no boasting here. No boasting. It's excluded. By what principle? The principle of works? No, by the principle of faith. It's by faith alone.